This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to be talking about the near-death experience and the afterlife in a very new way. We're doing a series from time to time over the course of this year with winners of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay contest about Afterlife and Afterlife Studies. A couple of weeks ago on May the 6th, I believe, we did Jeffrey Mishlove, who was the winner of the main contest. Today we're going to do Elizabeth Crone, whose essay won a smaller award, but at the same time is, I believe, the only essay in the context by someone who actually had a near-death experience and is also a very articulate student of the near-death experience, and I think that you're going to find it absolutely fascinating. We interviewed Elizabeth a couple of years ago about her book, uh, Changed in a Flash, I think in 2018. So it's high time that we did this again, and it's going to be a beautiful journey. I knew, know Elizabeth very well, and it's going to be a very intimate and wonderful interview. I will say one thing that's going to happen, unfortunately, though, is when she talks about her NDE, there is going to be interference. I can't get rid of it. It will disappear after she stops talking about the NDE, but it will be there, a little popping sound, through the whole conversation about the NDE itself as she's describing it. I do not know why this happens, but it happens on the show so consistently that we just have to live with it. We tried rebuting computers. We tried everything to get us to a situation where it would not be like that. There's only one thing that helped, stopping talking directly about the NDE. When she stops describing the NDE, for the most part, the sound goes away. Now, let's move on to Elizabeth Crone, uh, who is a truly extraordinary and wise individual. So, Elizabeth, why don't we start here? Why don't we start with that evening... You were walking toward Temple with your two boys, getting ready to go into Temple, and tell us about what happens next. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Whitley. I, I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to, to see you and visit with you. Um, so this was September of 1988, so it's been, it's been 33 years now, and my two young children, four years old and two years old, and I were going to services to um, mark the first anniversary of the death of my grandfather. My husband was out of town on business, and we had turned into the parking lot on what had otherwise been a beautiful, sunny September evening, and... Uh, suddenly there was a very dark rain cloud and the skies just opened up and there was just a torrential rainstorm. And <laughs> running late, as I typically used to do when I had young children, um, I parked the car and I didn't want to wait in the car for the rain to stop because we were running a little bit late. And I didn't want to miss the hearing, hearing the reading of my grandfather's name during the service. So I told my four-year-old son to get out of the car and to run to the awning over the door at the entrance to the synagogue. And 
to wait there, and I would follow shortly with his little brother. So Jeremy, who was four at the time, got out of the car and ran to the building, and I watched him, and, and he made it safely, and he was standing under the awning. And I climbed over the seat of the car into the back to get my two-year-old, Andy, out of his car seat. And I opened the car door. I had Andy, and I grabbed an umbrella that I had in the car and opened the car door. And, I mean, it, it was just unbelievable, the the force of this storm that just really came out of nowhere. And, in fact, you could see off in the distance it looked sunny. It was like this cloud was just right over the synagogue or the parking lot where I was. And so we got out of the car, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to handle the umbrella and the two-year-old. So I put him down on the ground, and I was just going to hold his hand as we made our way to the building. And so I was holding his left hand with my with my right hand, and I was holding the umbrella. I had the shaft of the umbrella very low down, close to my head. So my hand was high on the shaft. And the metal of my wedding ring was touching the metal shaft of the umbrella. And we took a few steps, and I I actually had a conscious thought that this was not a good idea, that I should not be crossing a parking lot with basically a lightning rod in my hand. And um, as soon as I thought that, I thought, well, I'm just going to let go of the umbrella. Just let it go and let it fly away. I, you know, I don't want to get hurt. So I I tried to let go. It's almost like my thoughts brought on this lightning. And there was a man nearby that saw what happened, and he told me later that there was a bolt of lightning with a tiny, tiny little tine of lightning that came off the big bolt, and it touched the tip of the umbrella. And that did not knock me out, but it caused my hand to be paralyzed. I I could not move my hand. I couldn't let go of the umbrella. And... Once I realized that, then a larger bolt hit the tip of the umbrella, and that's what knocked me out or killed me. Or you know, That was the trauma that got me near enough to death uh, that I was able to have this near-death experience. And so that, that's what happened, that uh, I was struck by lightning. Now, you... Oh, and incidentally, folks, there's going to be some interference while we're talking about this. We had had to stop and start again in hopes of eliminating it. And as many of you know, whenever we talk about afterlife and near-death stuff, we get a lot of audio interference on this show, and I can't correct it. If we change the subject, it'll go away, but that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about this. So you, what happens then is you basically... It's almost as if you were captured by something. I, I didn't realize this aspect of it. The cloud kind of comes out of nowhere. Then it, the umbrella is struck by a little bit of lightning that forces you to stay there, even though you know the danger. Right. Do you sense that you were 
literally captured for this experience? Was there, was there some kind of intention there? Well, I now know after having the near-death experience and receiving the information that I got while I was there, I now know that this was definitely a planned event that was going to happen in my lifetime. It was something I had agreed to before I came into this life. And so, yes, if it hadn't, you know, if I had left the house five minutes later or turned into the parking lot 15 seconds earlier, perhaps I could have avoided it that day. But at some point in this life, that was going to happen. It it was predestined. So, yes, I think that the fact that it happened the way it did, and I, I was kind of, you know, there's a paralysis. There's a medical term for it, which, of course, I can't think of the term right now. But it's it's a lightning paralysis. When someone is struck by lightning, um, your your muscles freeze up. Right, the the nerves are shorted out, and you can't, you don't have the ability right. to move anymore. Correct. It so happens when it, you get into t- involved with electricity; it can be very dangerous. Yeah. So when that happened, and I couldn't let go of the umbrella, um, that was, it depends on how you look at it. It was very helpful in that it allowed the larger bolt to to do its job, which was to basically kill me so that I could have this near-death experience. Um, and so, yeah, I do believe that that was an intentional thing that happened. Now, it happens. And your perception is fascinating at the moment. You, the lightning strikes, but you don't realize exactly what's happened. So tell us exactly after... Now, we know that your body is lying there on the ground, but you don't. Tell us exactly what happened at that moment. So the lightning, lightning is, when a bolt of lightning strikes, it is ear splitting. It is so loud. And it actually, excuse me, it actually um, burst my eardrums and my son's eardrums. I didn't feel the pain. I wasn't feeling any pain, but he did, my two-year-old. And he was standing there in the rain with his hands clamped to his ears, screaming, like just screaming in pain. And my four-year-old, who saw the whole thing happen, ran back out to where we were, and he took his brother by the hand and started pulling him to the building. So I thought, well, you know, I told him not to come out in the rain. Why is he coming back out here? But whatever. I So I'm following them. I thought I was following them into the building. Well, I was following them, and I did go into the building. All three of us went in, and we were in the lobby. And there was a man walking toward where the services were from the restroom. And it was someone that... I knew, and so he came over to see, but at this point, both the boys were screaming, and he came over to see what all the commotion was, but it was so strange. He was ignoring me. You know, he was just talking to the kids. He wasn't talking to me, 
and he was trying to figure out why they were screaming, and the whole thing was very disorienting. And I thought, um, where's my umbrella? I, I, I knew I had had an umbrella. So I looked back out the, the door of the synagogue had these narrow windows and I looked out one of the windows and I saw the umbrella and it was lying on the parking lot smoking. It was like a a skeleton of an umbrella and it was smoking and my, my gaze kind of shifted to the right about 20 feet and there was like a heap a heap in the parking lot. And I looked at it again and I realized it was me. I I was looking at me out there in the parking lot from inside the building. I was now let's, let's, let's hold it right here because folks listen to her carefully. This will happen to all of you. It will happen to me. It's going to happen to Elizabeth again. And when it does happen to Elizabeth again, she's going to say, oh, I'm back. But, but listen carefully. Anne said one of the first things she said after she died and we regained communication with one another was, it looks like you're all intentionally ignoring us. And remember, that's exactly what it looked like to you, Elizabeth, when the man in the, in the, in the lobby was just talking to your boys and ignoring you. Right. And this world is full of people who are in that state being ignored. And, and, and so now the question is, what exactly happened to you? after you realized the heap was you? Well, I first kind of took stock of the entire situation and realized that the boys, my children, were going to be fine because they were in a place that was safe and people knew them. I knew that my parents were there and that the boys were going to be fine. So I decided I wanted to go back outside and kind of see what the situation was. I still didn't get that I was dead. I just was disoriented. So I, it was almost like as soon as I thought I want to go see that, then I was there looking at it and. And I look down, and I'm looking at myself on the ground, and that's when it hit me. Uh, I, you know, my response was, oh, shit, I'm dead. That's it. I'm dead. And my next thought was, um, what a waste. I mean, I was 28 years old, and I felt like I had wasted 28 years because I, it, it, it was like an instantaneous understanding of the fact that death isn't the end. I mean, yes, I was dead and yes, I saw that, yet I'm still thinking. I'm still conscious. I'm, I'm still here. And, 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 and could you see the world around you just as, as always? Or, but wait, folks. Free Dreamlanders, we're taking a brief break here uh, for ads, and uh, do enjoy uh, the ads because uh, 
if you if you if you do what they say you'll enjoy your life even more we'll be right back unknowncountry.com subscribers have access to a vast treasury of information listen to what dr robert shock said he's an expert on the past and for that reason he also knows a great deal about the future we are re-entering as you say a debris field and when you have a debris field like this it enters the solar system it energizes the solar system as you have things um, going into the sun even clouds of dust particles for instance it will energize the sun it will destabilize the sun this is what we saw at the end of the last ice age in approximate terms about 13,000 years ago. And just in the past few days, more enormous meteors have been sighted, and this goes on continuously, more and more every year. We live in a time of great change in a world that doesn't like to look at things as they are. UnknownCountry.com offers extraordinary information, a vast archive that you cannot find anywhere else. Subscribe today. Help keep this website going because without you, there is and can be no us. Go to UnknownCountry.com right now. Click on the subscribe tab. Get started. This is not communication. It's communion. Hundreds of thousands of people have claimed contact. That will change you. It changed me. This was something that I kept buried for years. Strange things would happen. I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. He came at me, and I fought for my life. Ships started to pop up in the sky. And there's this bizarre disk of light. It is moving across the sky very fast. The experience is often very terrifying. If I felt fear, I would crawl under my covers, hoping that it would go away, whatever it was. I know that we were put in that craft. I knew I was going to go to another planet. And the being was right next to my face. He saw two shadow beings. That's when I felt like I was going to die. I had a real encounter with something. Even if I had to live with the fear, is to know the truth. Is to know. Okay, you were, we're back. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Her 
book, incidentally, is changed in a flash. You can get it through us, and it's a wonderful, wonderful story. I've got the title right, haven't I? Yes. Oh, good, good. Now, what I wanted to know is how did the world look at that point? Because when I've been out of my body, sometimes the world's looked a little different. Other times it has been just exactly so, so completely like this that I didn't even know at first I was out of my body. Right. That's part of what was so disorienting about it is that to me, it looked completely normal. It looked the way it always looks. So I had a hard time at first understanding that I was out of my body because uh, everything looked the same. The only difference was it appeared that other people couldn't see me. And so that that was unsettling. But but you were alone in the sense that there was no other entities around that could see you. At that point, correct. Yes. At that point. Right. Once I had gone back outside. Inside the building, there there was a man there that should have been able to see me. But he didn't. He couldn't. Uh, when you say should have been able to, what do you mean? Do you, do you mean that... He, go I ahead. thought... I was there in normal bodily form. Yeah, but, but what I'm asking is is not quite this that question. What I'm asking is, were there any other disincarnate entities that you saw that saw you? No. Okay. No, at that point. Not at that point. No. All right, it so was, then, then what happened? So I'm out there, I'm looking down at myself, and, uh, you know, I had thoughts going through my head about um, that I clearly had not understood that consciousness survives death uh, prior to this point. I had not understood that. And then a light appeared. It was kind of to my right and above. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a real tight ball of light that it was kind of a diffuse, like the the light that would be around a light bulb, not the light bulb itself. And it was to my right and above me, and I knew that this light wanted me to follow it. And I thought, well, <laughs> the boys seem to be okay. They're taken care of, and... I seem to be dead, and so I'm just going to follow this light and, and see what happens. So I did. I followed it, and it led me to a garden. And when I say a garden, I don't mean a garden like like what you'd see here on Earth. This was totally different, but I don't really have another word to describe it other than garden. Um, there were plants and flowers that the colors were so intense so intense and they weren't colors that exist here they it it must have been from another spectrum it the colors just aren't here they don't exist um and the flowers were enormous and just exploding with color. And there was a bench. There was like a, a stream 
and next to the stream was a bench. And it was a very ornate bench. It had been, it, it was made of some kind of wood, and it what looked like it had been hand-carved. It had a lot of swirls and, you know, very, very gorgeous bench. And suddenly a voice said to me, uh, sit down on the bench. And the voice was the voice of my grandfather who had died a year earlier. And I know it was his voice. He had a very distinctive voice. He was French and he had a heavy French accent and, and I know his voice. And he told me to sit on the bench. <laughs> so when you find yourself, um, in the afterlife, dead in, you know, dead in the afterlife, and your deceased grandfather tells you to sit on a bench, you sit. You just do it. And so I sat down, and as soon as I sat on this wooden bench, it it morphed around me. It, like, conformed to my body shape, and it became the most comfortable place I've ever sat, ever. And you felt material. You felt like a material being. And that light that came, it's almost as if it transported you into another version of yourself, perhaps, that was equally material but not in this world. Does that make sense, or am I going off the base here? That That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I sat down on the bench, the light moved Way off in the distance, there was a range, a mountain range, and the light moved behind the mountains. So I could still see the glow from the light, but it was way off in the distance. And I was on this bench in the garden. And my grandfather, who, by the way, um, I do not believe that was my grandfather talking to me. I, I have come to understand that it was, it was God. He was using my grandfather's voice to put me at ease so I wouldn't, wouldn't be terrified in this place. Yeah, yeah that would, it would be upsetting to end up having a chat with God just seconds right. after you died. I mean, right. that would be a lot to, a lot to take in. A lot to process. So it was my grandfather's voice, but immediately I knew it was not my grandfather. And he told me that he was going to give me whatever information I wanted um, telepathically. It would just be like a download into my mind. There wouldn't be any audible speech or, uh, you know, it. He, he said, I don't want to disrupt the sound of the water, the flowing water that was in this brook next to the bench. And... And so that began our two-week conversation. Now, why would he say that he didn't want to dis- dis- disrupt the sound of the flowing water, do you think? Well, in life, I have always, always loved the sound of flowing water more, more than any other sound. I, I enjoy that more than music. 
I, I enjoy it. I, and I think that when, no, I don't think, I know, I know that when a person dies, that the heaven that you are, uh, exposed to is whatever you enjoyed in life. So in life, I always enjoyed gardens, the sound of water, the aroma of flowers. Um, so I, it's whatever you enjoy in life and will put you at ease, that's what you will experience. That will be your heaven. So I saw other people in the distance. I didn't speak to anyone else, but I saw them there, and everyone was paired up with someone. Like I had my guide with me. Everyone did. And I knew that it was part of the download of information that I got. I I knew that everyone there, we were all in the same place, which was heaven. But we were all seeing a different version of heaven. And you, but you could see, you could see the others, but you, but you weren't sure that they were seeing the same world you were seeing. They weren't. I, I knew they weren't. I knew, you know, that someone over there may be seeing a, a, a meadow and someone over there may be seeing an Olympic sized swimming pool. If, what, could you interact with them at all? I don't know. I didn't try. You didn't try. No. I wonder if you were meant not to try. It, it's I, a, there's a sense that there was some kind of controlling factor here that was doing this. Well, Whitley, when you're sitting there and you're talking to God, you don't want to interrupt the conversation. No, I don't think so. <laughs> there was really no one else there that um, could have held more interest for me than than God. Yeah. So... We're going to take our second break here, those of you on the free side, and then we'll come back to Elizabeth and we're going to be talking a little bit about that conversation. And then later on, we're going to get into this wonderful essay because Elizabeth has thought very carefully about things like why we can't pin this down scientifically and what we need to do to shift from a state of wondering about it to a state where, at least on a personal level, we can know. Elizabeth knows. She's lived this. I know because of the life I've lived. I've never had an NDE, but I I live with somebody right back there who not only had NDEs, she is both still around and embodied in another body now. So this is part of my life. I'm very familiar with it. We're going to talk anyway later about how do we get to the point where we're comfortable with the idea that there's an afterlife. Because if we could get comfortable with that, it would be so valuable to mankind. The the fear that has driven us for so many thousands of years would not be there anymore. And also there would be an awareness of the need to live this life in a way that gives you a good afterlife. That would change a lot of things. We'll be right back. 
My new book, Jesus A New Vision, is not a Christian book. It is not an anti-Christian book either. Very much not an anti-Christian book. It is new, genuinely new. A look at Jesus in his life and what happened afterwards, his resurrection, for the Shroud of Turin is no medieval forgery. It goes all the way back, and it does record an extraordinary event that appears to have been a body transforming into a form of coherent light. The science is very strong at this point. And yet, how could that be? What an extraordinary mystery. The life of Jesus is mysterious indeed. But the greater part of the mystery is about us. How is it that a human body could transform in that way? Who accomplished it? Why did it happen? What does it mean to you and me about our lives now? Jesus a new vision, a new window into a very old way of looking at the truth. A way of finding ourselves, perhaps, that we lost a long time ago, but can recover. Jesus, a new vision is available in Kindle format, as a paperback, in audiobook format on Audible and Apple, and as a Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Do go and get it today. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Elizabeth's book is Changed in a Flash. She is one of the winners of the uh, Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies uh, essay contest with her essay, The Eternal Life of Consciousness. And we're going to get to that in a few minutes because it's a wonderful, powerful essay. And above all, and the reason I chose Elizabeth as one of the essayists I most wanted to speak to, well, there are two reasons. One, she's fun, as you can see. And uh two, this is a really empowering essay because it comes from somebody who's been there and done that and who can think very clearly about this whole subject. Okay, so now you're in this situation where you're having uh, a conversation with a very heavily disguised God. I mean, when I say heavily disguised, let's face it, appearing as your grandfather, if that is really God, that's a pretty pretty definitely a disguise. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, it was, the voice was disguised, not the physical appearance, because I didn't ever look at him to see what he looked like. So I don't know if he looked like my grandfather or if he, you know, and if he did look like my grandfather, would he have been uh, 90 years old looking when my grandfather died? Or would he have been a younger version of my grandfather? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't look at him. 
I don't think I was supposed to look at him. I wasn't supposed to. It would have been overwhelming to me. Whether I saw my grandfather definitely would have been overwhelming to see God. So I I didn't look. It it was just a, a voice. It was a voice. And so we began this two-week conversation. Um, it, it was basically me asking questions. I was told I, I could decide whether I wanted to stay there or come back into my very burned body. Um, or I could stay there. And if I stayed there, that I would follow this path through the garden to the mountain range where the light was. And I would go on the other side of the mountain range. Uh, that would have been a more permanent uh, ending to this life. No, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say, uh, even that isn't permanent because we do cycle back. So. Yeah, I was, I, because I met some people who cycled, were cycling back. And uh, in fact, I now know one of them in this life, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they, when we were living at the cabin, uh, toward the end of the time we had there, uh, a group of people showed up who, when I say a group of people showed up, they didn't exactly knock on the door. Uh, they came, at first they came thudding down on the top of the meditation room, seven of them, and then they were in the room, but you couldn't see them. Uh, my listeners have heard this story, but suffice to say, I did see one of them physically uh, briefly, and I, I came to understand that they were in the middle, in the bardo, in the between lives, waiting to reincarnate. And recently, for various reasons, I'm pretty sure I know one of them, uh, one of these seven people, and I'm going to meet this person physically sooner or later. And we talk a lot uh, on the Internet, and I... I think that we had a ta- we have a task, a kind of agreement together. So, so you would have gone into that other place. Did you ever get any closer to it, or any no. idea? No, no, I never left the bench until I decided to come back here. And what I, made you decide to come back here? Well, the information that I received there helped me to decide the questions I asked. I was given a lot of information. Take um, take us through it. Take us through it. There was there was a lot of Okay, first of all, I I completely understood physics, which is so laughable because in my life here, um I don't understand physics. I my, my undergraduate degree is in business. Mm-hmm. I I went to law school. That's about as far from physics as you can get. And but while I was there, I completely understood the fact that time is not linear. Um I didn't even have to ask about it because I I just understood. It it was part of that download. I I just knew time is not linear. I still know that now. I just don't really, I can't grasp it the way I did there. Um, and also, people ask me all the time, 
you know, you say that time isn't linear, yet you also say you were there for two weeks. So how, how do you, how does that even make sense? How were you marking time if time really doesn't even exist? And I think what, what's happening or what had to happen is that I had to be able to mark time and I have to be able to think back and remember everything in linear terms just so I can decipher it. I, I was given so much information and the only way I can understand it here is to remember it in linear terms. So uh, there was in the garden there, there was, I call it a calendar. It wasn't really a calendar. It was three orbs in the sky. They were like, I don't know if they were planets or, or moons, but they were moving. And the way they were moving in relation to one another was marking the passage of time for me. I understood how much time was passing. Now, in, in Earth time, I was gone probably two minutes. Um, it was not two minutes. It was two weeks. I, there is no possible way I could have gotten the information I got and had the conversations I had in two minutes. So time was really, uh, time, time isn't what we think it is here. And so I, I have a very difficult time understanding that now that I'm here. One of the pieces of information I was given, well, two, two things actually. One was I was told who was going to be elected president. This happened in September and the election was coming up in November 1988. And I was told that George H.W. Bush was going to win the election. And I was also told about the Super Bowl that was going to be played shortly after that, which was comical. I mean, I had, I don't think I had ever watched a Super Bowl. I have no interest in football. Um, and I was told that the reason I was given that information about the Super Bowl and about the presidential election was as a trigger. So that when those two events happened, it would trigger in me the memory of being in the garden and a lot of this information would come back to me. And it worked beautifully. I mean, when George Bush was elected, it was like just all of a sudden I, I started remembering everything that I had been told. So and then when the Super Bowl, yeah, same thing. Let's go back to before any of this ever happened and try to, have you looked through your life to try to understand why you might have been chosen for this? Is there anything there that you have seen that may make that make sense that why of all the billions of people on the planet, Elizabeth Crone was singled out and it was decided from on high, okay, we're going to zap her with lightning and then send her back and see what happens. Well, I have a few theories. First of all, it's not just Elizabeth Crone. I think all of us agree to certain things before we come into a life. 
and that was something that I had agreed to. I think we have to have certain, uh, learn certain lessons, have certain experiences in order to make any progress for our souls to, prog- to progress and maybe at some point reach a, a point where we don't have to come back and do this anymore. I mean, this is not fun. This is, this is hard being here. And so that, that's the first thing I want to say about that. It's not just me. I think it's all of us. Um, second of all, I think we have to go back to my life prior to being born into this life to understand this. Um, it wasn't until I met Jeff Kripal, who was a co-author of my book with me. Uh, I met Jeff in 2015, and it was a very um, serendipitous way that we met. And he actually was looking for someone to write a book with on this subject. And, and I had always wanted to write a book about what had happened to me. And we met each other. We were both invited to speak on a panel. And the night that we spoke, uh, we decided we were going to try to write a book together. So while we were working on the book, uh, Jeff contacted a colleague of his, Eric Wargo, who wrote a book called Time Loops, and explained the situation to Eric, you know, told him my story. And Eric said, and this just really made sense to me. It, it clicked for me. Eric said, probably Jeff and I knew each other previously, other lives, and that we had agreed to come back and, and to work together on this information and getting this out there. And the way it would happen would be I would be struck by lightning and at some point Jeff and I would meet each other and and write this book. And sure enough, that's what happened. Now, in this life, before, before the lightning, I did have an experience, um, trauma. I experienced terrible trauma as a child um, from the time I was six until I was 12. I was raped by a babysitter. And looking back on that now, after the near-death experience, uh, I realized that that there may have been a purpose in that. And that would be that every time I was being raped, I left my body. I, I, I couldn't stay there. I couldn't just take that pain. So I left. And the most important part of that is that I came back each time. So when the lightning struck me, one of my first thoughts was, Oh, you know how to do this. You've done this before. Remember? And that all came back. So I was kind of already. I had a comfort level with being outside my body to a degree. And most importantly, I knew how to come back when I was ready. So I think those have been. 
I had trouble coming back the first time I went out of my body. A lot of trouble. I thought I wasn't going to make it, and I was thinking, my God, Anne's going to wake up in the morning with a corpse beside her, but the kind of life I lived, she lived, she's not going to even be surprised. I'm very upset about this. But fortunately, I did get back in. For those of you who haven't heard the story, basically, I got out of my body the first time. I was taken out. I've never gotten out on my own. And um, when I tried to get back in, the interior of my body was slick. like It was like mercury or metal or something. It was just very slick, and I kept falling out until I suddenly was plunged back into my childhood. And there was my father mowing the lawn, and he said, when are you going to come help me? And bang, I was back in my body like it split. <laughs> so they know that. In any case, let's, we, um, you weren't sure that you could get back even after, but you, but you, you had a proficiency from this awful thing that had been happening to you as a child. You've been right. going in and out of your body. Oh boy, what an awful story. Elizabeth, yeah. my heart beats. I mean, it's such a, for six long years, it's like a jail sentence or something, or a sentence to be tortured for no reason for six years. Yeah, well, there was. This world is hard, all right. Yes, it is. It is. But why are I we did, here? Why are we here? Yeah. To learn. This is this is the education. This level is where we learn. Yeah, and that's why the visitors told me it was a school. Yeah. And, it's hard and school. Women, yeah, it's very difficult. Very difficult. You know, and right now we're looking at climate change and the crazy man and the Kremlin and all this. It's the usual deal. I mean, it's been like this all through our history. It's just a very hard place. I can't help but notice you've got a lot of books about war on your, on your, uh, uh yeah, sort of this, fits, we, we, fits the situation, doesn't it? <laughs> we have separate shelves. This is my husband's shelf. He's, oh, I see. He's, you know, he reads about World War II. <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when we were living in San Antonio, my wife Annie, we had a friend uh, who, he was a, a bachelor who didn't want to be a bachelor, and he was in his 50s. And uh, he said to Anne, you know, Whitley, Anne, will you give me some idea about how I could maybe uh, manage to spend, get a woman to spend more than two days with me. And so she said, well, let's go over to your house and see what your house is like, because you, you take your dates to your house. And he said, yes, I do generally. And because I'm a, he was a very good cook and he would like to cook dinner for them and it never worked out. And as soon as we walked in, she took one look in his library and she said, what is it? What is this? He, these are all books about Nazis. And he said, yeah, I'm very interested in Nazis. She said, this is a Nazi room. That is a definite no. As soon as any one woman sees the Nazi room, they're out of here. Get rid of the Nazi room and you'll find a wife. And he did. <laughs> How funny. Yeah, yeah, well, they're not my books about World War II. But no, well, I, I'm sort of glad that they aren't because they were sort of out of character. The Elizabeth I know yeah, isn't, isn't the type who'd be reading about Stalingrad. Well, listen, uh, we have a brief break again for our free Dreamlanders, and then we're going to get back, and I'm, I'm going to sh- force myself to shift to this brilliant essay 
because we need to talk about it. It's important and it's valuable. And you can click through to it from the Dreamland page. And please do that because it's very empowering, especially from the fact that it comes from the pen of somebody who's been there and done that. We'll be right back. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us? In you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. UnknownCountry.com There's no place like it in the world. We're talking to Elizabeth Crone. Elizabeth is a uh, near-death experiencer uh, who is also a winner of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies contest. Uh, she's written a terrific essay, and I think it's time to go on to the eternal life of consciousness. And one of the things that you talk about is why it is that science can't pin this down. And this is very important because, like it or not, we live in a scientific culture. And we can listen to someone like Elizabeth all we want. But in the end, we need it to be pinned down in order to really believe it for ourselves. What is this lack of dependability in this study? Why can't we pin it down, Elizabeth? I think your answers to your discussion of this in the essay is brilliant. The the short answer is the scientific method includes um, two things, observation, and, and the other thing is it, that an experiment has to be repeatable on demand, and you can't repeat this. You would have to be killing people, and reviving them over and over in order to be using the scientific method. And you can't do that. Uh, so as far as science proving this, I don't think so. Uh, it, it's not possible because we can't kill people and bring them back legally, morally, ethically. We can't do it. Uh, there was actually a TV show about it, um, I think it was in 2016. It was called The OA on Netflix. And it was about this, you know, mad doctor who, who did that. He kidnapped five victims and he would, um, induce death and then revive them and question them about what they saw and where they went. But anyway, we can't do that. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, the scientific method is pretty much off the table. Now, there are a lot of scientists, doctors out there that are researching this and and claim that they're doing it scientifically. 
I, I don't really understand how that can be. Um, one of the things that I talk about in my essay is, is, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. If, if that is good enough for our justice system, then it should be good enough here. If, if somebody can show evidence of something beyond a reasonable doubt, I believe that's the closest we're going to get to proof. There is no proof. It, all there is, is really good evidence. Proof comes when you die and when you experience it for yourself and you see it for yourself. That's the proof. Maybe it's meant to be that way. Because after all, if we knew, as I, we were talking, I briefly mentioned earlier, for certain, wouldn't we be different? Like, you have yes. to ask yourself, what's going to happen to Vladimir Putin when he's dead? Do you have right. any idea what happens to the people that are, do evil? I have no idea. I mean, people ask me all the time, what happened to Hitler? What, you know, I, I don't know. I don't Anne know. Anne said I, an interesting thing. She said, I asked what happened to Hitler and what happens to evil people, and she said nothing. And that, at first I thought, you mean they're not, they're not, uh, punished or anything? And then I realized what she had really said was, they don't get an afterlife. Mm. They disappear. And it was the most chilling thing I have ever heard. Mo- moment, one of the most chilling moments of my life when I had the realization that she had said that they trade their immortal being for an evil life. Interesting. That's a very interesting idea. I, I wonder if it's true. I soul, bet it is. The soul ceases to exist. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't ask. It, you it didn't, wasn't. And you, and you never saw anybody or in, encountered anybody who was any, in any sort of trouble? In, in the afterlife? Yeah. No. No. If I did, I, I wasn't aware of it. Because there, there has to be, there have to be billions of people who are not going to just not exist, but who have done a lot of things that they regret. Did you have, did you have a, one of those experiences of, of, uh, uh, life review? I did not have a life review, but I, I review my life all the time now. And, um, are there things I regret? Of course. You know, I'm, I'm far, far, far from a perfect person. And I, you know, I, sometimes I hurt people unintentionally. You know, sometimes I'm angry. I, nobody is perfect. And transgressions like that are forgiven. That does not make me or anyone else a bad person. That makes us human. It just it, makes forgiveness us human. is a very important part of of this. I think there is a great deal of forgiveness, but I don't know that it's unlimited. Right. I I I think I, I don't know, Whitley. I, this is just not something I'm I'm well versed in. I I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it and. I haven't done much reading about it. 
But so, you you do know <laughs> that there is an afterlife. That's the fascinating yeah. thing. You're a no. You describe in the essay. You say I'm a knower. Yeah, I just know. And I haven't I, had an NDE, but I'm a knower too. Yes, I know you are. I I also know that there are negative NDEs. So tell us you know, a little bit about that. Uh, well, I didn't have a negative NDE, but I know that. Uh, you know, bad people and even some good people can have negative experiences with near death. And I don't know that there's any explanation as to why a good person would have an experience like that. You know, Whitley, have you ever met or interviewed Eben Alexander? Um. I- Yes, we have had even on the show. And he was okay. also at one of the Dreamland festivals in those dear days of yore when we had Dreamland festivals. Maybe we'll have one again sometime. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful person. And I know that part of his experience was negative. Yes. And I don't understand. I don't know what the explanation for that is, but I know it happens in about 10% of near-death experiences. Right. I always worry it'll happen in mine because I played too many practical jokes on my dad when I was a boy. But but my brother did I don't did. know if it works like that. What? I don't know if it works like that. I hope not. Well, he's there. I know he's still mowing the lawn. I saw him. He's still waiting for me to come come do my chores. Dad, dad had a habit of, if you didn't, if your chore, didn't start your chore, Early in the morning, he'd start it for you. So you'd be lying in bed and begging God that it would be, that you wouldn't have to to mow the lawn today. And suddenly you'd hear the lawnmower out there and you'd think, oh no, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, that's worse. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, get to a little bit more about the, you, you, you reference an interesting study in Scientific American, an article called Eyewitness Memory is a Lot More Reliable Than You Think. And that was, you compared it to hearsay, which is not as reliable. What is exactly the difference and why is eyewitness memory, has it been found to be more reliable? Because that could be very important in a case like yours. Or in mind, for that matter, with all these visitor experiences, could it be that these eyewitness memories are actually quite accurate? Yes, and they have done scientific studies on that, and where they have been able to prove that eyewitness memory and testimony is very powerful, very, very powerful. Uh, hearsay, on the other hand, is another word for that would be gossip. So not, it's not admissible, admissible in a court of law, um, but eyewitness testimony is. So somebody that witnesses a crime can testify to that, but someone that's been told about a crime cannot testify to it. So yes, eyewitness testimony is very powerful and, and legitimate and scientifically proven to be legitimate. That's very interesting because um, 
of course, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of court cases where it's turned out that eyewitness testimony wasn't so accurate and people are let, let go from, from the, from prison all the time because they were misidentified. And, uh, so, but interestingly enough, and I think that, you know, I'm writing, I'm in the process of writing as I speak, an introduction to the new edition of communion that's coming out in May. And I, am struggling with how valid and re- and accurate are my memories. And that's why I also came across this same article, and I was surprised that eyewitness memories, it, when they're tested, turn out to be pretty accurate, for the most part. Right. I mean, anyone can make a mistake, I suppose. Um, but as far as eyewitness testimony about a near-death experience that's uh, you know I nothing about my experience has changed in my memory in 33 years I don't expect it to change Um, you know I I can close my eyes and remember being in that garden and still see every detail and remember every word that I was told. So I, I think it's a very powerful tool. I yeah. witness testimony, and that is part of the reason that my essay was selected, because it was one of the few essays written. Most of them were written by scientists and doctors who are studying and running yes. large studies on near-death experience. Mine was one of the very few that was written by someone who has actually experienced it. Yeah, that's why I have you, I'm having you on the show. Yeah, and came at it from that angle, which is very different. Because I think that, I think it's very important. I think that this type of testimony is critical. That, you know, here you are saying that this happened to you. And I'm convinced, frankly, and I think my listeners probably are and viewers probably are too. Yeah, it, it does happen. And that means we've got to live our lives in a very conscious and aware way. And when we get back, subscribers, we're going to talk about just what Elizabeth has learned about living this life in such a way that your afterlife comes to you as something valuable and good and fruitful, and maybe something that does not require you to come back to this hard place for another lesson. Those of you on the free side of the show, thank you so much for being with us. Come again next week. We're always just glad to have you. I want to thank Elizabeth. Her book is Changed in a Flash. It's available, I'm sure, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you shop for books. Don't miss it. It's a wise, wonderful and exciting tale indeed. And with Jeff, written with our dear mutual friend, Jeffrey Kreifel, who ought to be called St. Jeffrey, but we don't do that anymore. So goodbye, free Dreamlanders. The subscribers will keep on keeping on. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. 
Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Strieber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.